0: On Rebuilders today, we are looking at 2023, the year ahead and the mood
1: that surrounds this year. What is the mood of 2023? What to expect, how to prepare yourself for it, um, how to understand it, how to be ahead of the curve. Talking all about that today on Rebuilders.
0: Yeah, it's a great episode. And if you want to know any of our resources, we mention a bunch of articles in the episode ahead. You can subscribe to our mailing list by heading to Rebuilders.co. Let's get into it. Hi, welcome to Rebuilders. We're back for 2023. My name is Liddy and I'm here with Mark and Daniel. How are you both? How was your January break?
1: Good. Had a big January break as we do down under, which is our big main year break when it's the midst of summer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, did you get back to <coughs> Bendigo?
0: I did. I yeah. went up for a couple of days. It was a bit later than anticipated, you know, COVID still around. So, yes. um, yeah, but went up just after New Year's. Saw the family
1: Nice. And I, you didn't return to your home region of Baro, the Barossa. You instead no. traveled north. Mm, went to I, New South Wales. My wife's family
2: is all in New South Wales now. Yeah. Went to Wagga Wagga and oh, Wagga, to, Wagga to Wollongong. Oh, um, cool. Yeah, both places I have not been, so it was great to visit yeah. and mm. see some of the great land of Australia. The mm. gong. And Hello to anyone listening in ben, oh. Bendigo. Wagga, Wagga Wagga. It's a beautiful place. Mm. I I expected a big town, and it's actually a, a significant regional city. Wollongong, Wollongong, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so loved it. It was great to, great to
1: visit. Great. I've been to Wagga Wagga for years. I've never My been. Great aunt used to live there. Yeah, yeah
2: right. Oh. It's kind of out of the way if you're driving from Melbourne to Sydney or Canberra. You don't go through it. I know. Go from Adelaide to Sydney, you would go through Wagga, but yeah, um, yeah it's a great regional city as well. There yeah. you go. Yep. Oh, just oh, great. Everything's great. <laughs> yeah. Everything's great. On oh, the Murrumbidgee, which is a fun word to say. Oh, Murrumbidgee River. Yeah. River. Yeah.
0: And if none of if any of you have no idea what we're talking about, Google, Google, Maps. Google Maps. Google Maps, yes. Google that's Maps. what I was
2: gonna say. Yeah. Down and the road from Narandra. Narandra. are you just oh.
0: wanting to say words that uh, are fun to say? Yeah. Yeah. Australia has
2: lots of fun place
0: names, they do. We do. Well, it is great to be back. Um, and as we kick off 2023, we're going to start by looking at a bunch of articles that you have come across over the last few weeks, Mark, mm. and then we'll zoom out and take sort of a meta view of what is potentially happening in culture, the shifts that are occurring and how they impact us or how they can help inform what we're doing um, as leaders in Christian contexts.
1: Yeah, it's interesting over January I did listen to some podcasts and there's a lot of podcasts were doing their January uh you know predictions and and trends they're expecting in 2023 and I, and I I I sort of felt like what I wanted to do is capture that a kind of mood shift that is occurring the yeah. mood of 2023 um and I think also it's just been really interesting that a lot of the sort of things that we've forecasted foreshadowed yeah. Been been observing. I think it's starting to really come to the fore in 2023. Um, so just just a few interesting ones. Um, I mean, this is a, this is a fascinating. Like okay, a little tip for for viewing the media and news. Often people ask me, how do you read the news? Often a lot of the news is I think reading articles and often reading what are often really key leads that are buried in the story, as yes. they say. Yeah. So there was a there was an interesting article uh, in Reuters about. The big Davos World Economic Forum mm-hmm. um, thing, which has been happening, which is really the sort of glo- gathering of the global elite in a town of Davos in Switzerland. Or you know, Davos has become a bit of a cultural meme because you know there's lots of the you know conspiracy theories around um uh, the WF and so on. But it's it's definitely this place of the gathering of the global elite. Anyway. They talked about uh, the sort of mood there mm-hmm. and just fascinating. They sort of talked about this gloominess that was in the mood uh, but then also trying to not be downcast about where the world's going.
0: Yes, But just this
1: interesting little detail I noticed that uh, PricewaterhouseCooper, uh, the sort of uh, big global accountancy firm, mm. uh, presented some research that they had been doing of I think it's was 4,000 chief executives of some of the world's biggest companies uh, and this was presented at Davos. Forty percent of these key chief executives of some of the world's biggest companies believe that their companies will not survive the next ten years economically. Wow! Hmm. Um, oh, yeah. And that's just a fascinating mood shift mm. from you know where we've been and sort of the the confidence in the world and that sort of sense that things are uh, changing. Um, I also noticed another story which caught my attention, which was uh, in Copenhagen is probably the world's most famous or seen as the best restaurant in the world, uh, mm-hmm. Noma, and uh, plates there can go for over $1,000, um, uh, which is pretty pricey. Yeah, um, I mean and, that's
0: a lot for a, a meal.
1: And you have to um, book in advance. Um, and the chef there, uh, René Rezepi, uh, is sort of seen as, you know, one of the most innovative you know, cooks in the, you know, chefs in the world rather. Sure. Um, and it was fascinating that uh, basically he announced uh, on January 10th that uh, the world's best restaurant is closing for financial reasons. Huh. And interesting, The story behind this was that despite having a $1,000 plates, um, that what had happened was that some of the ways that uh, these sort of high-end Michelin uh, uh, kitchens operate is that they have people come in who are interns. And the people come in as interns and they'll work for like three months with this world renowned chef. Now, if you've worked for this guy or you work in one of these top Michelin restaurants, that means you can go back to your home country or go wherever and they're like going to employ you because you've learned from the master. Mm. Um, But interestingly, there was sort of this pushback and we're seeing this all around the place where people are looking at, you know, issues of what they call wage theft and so on. Mm. And so this sort of online campaign began of people who'd worked at in Denmark and Uh, then there was this push that he should be paying the interns a fair wage. And effectively when they crunched the numbers, what it meant was that they just simply could not run a restaurant at that level, at that cost. So he has to shut down and he's chosen to shut down. I think he's gonna do something else. Uh, But I just thought it was really interesting in this, this, and you'll see this theme as we sort of tease out these stories of high values, high ideals, starting to meet cost, the actual cost of things. Uh, another story, which is very similar, is that on January the 1st, um, a set of laws came into play in Germany. And Germany just passed um, some of the most significant laws around ethics and its supply chain. Yeah. Now, I can't remember if we've spoken about it before, but one of the big moves in investing has been this idea of ESG and there's investment firms like BlackRock. Um, I think it's uh, is the CEO of BlackRock, Larry Fink. I'll just fact check that. Uh, Yes, correct. Uh, Larry Fink. He's been a real advocate for these ESG type loans and investments. Mm-hmm. Basically, what that is environment, sustain uh, environment, society, and governance. So basically, investing and ensuring that where you're putting your money has these very high ethical standards around what people are doing with the environment and all kinds of very different social causes and 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 good governance and so on. There's a backlash coming against that mm-hmm. because it's some people see it as sort of a Trojan horse of bringing different sort of social values into you know. So like if a local council wants to borrow money or that company, it then has to conform to these various sort of social agendas. Yes. And the German German government past has been working on this similar thing. But what's really interesting is the scale of this. So basically any company, from my understanding, dealing with a German company uh, has to uh, agree to all of these different sort of ESG-type measurements around – all kinds of things, from freedom of religion to the place of women to all of these different things, but that's that's demanded along the entire supply chain. So, for wow. example, if if a company is building a, a renewable battery and it's getting those raw earth materials from, say, Mali, yeah. uh, they have to adhere to almost the German level of what you would expect, say, in a, in a place like Germany, but through the entire touching of their supply chain. And I think – um, basically, if the firms don't do this, up, they could be fined up to two percent of their global turnover. Which two percent of a global turnover—a big sort of multinational—is mm. huge. So basically, it's all around. Ident- and the the risk is actually on the companies, yes, uh, not the sort of subcontractors. If you like, to have to identify, assess, prevent, and remedy human rights and human environmental impacts along the entirety of their supply chains. Now, again, to there's a lot that's very admirable about this and and the introduction of values and ethics uh, into this space. But what it means is that there's a lot of the world which simply don't line up to those, you know, those values. You think about the supply chain, say, of you may have the car factory Mm. um, where – Perhaps they're selling a car, and perhaps in Germany that car plant's got, got the electric batteries, and and they're at that standard. But again, too, what does that mean in yeah some mine somewhere? Yeah, what's mm-hmm. the flow-on effect um, all the way yeah, down yeah. the chain? And and just whether this is a point where it's going to put Germany at a significant disadvantage in a world where you're competing with countries like Russia or China and, mm. and others who are, who are just simply not going to do this. Um, and you know what does this mean? You know, it's it's this it's this coming together. And this is one of the big themes of high cost with high values, high, high ethics. Yes. Um, so it's really interesting to see how that's beginning to play out. Um, there was another interesting stat as well that you've got at Davos. Um, you know, there's a lot of talk about you know ESG and sustainability and the environment and equality and diversity and tolerance. But it's interesting. Oxfam released a study which said that since 2020, since the beginning of the pandemic. Um, the richest one percent of the world have a close have accumulated close to two-thirds of all new wealth. So what you're seeing is at the same time that corporates and uh uh, governments are talking increasingly about equality and so on, uh, particularly in the West, mm. uh, that during that time, you have seen, you know, and you've seen all kinds of initiatives around, you know, environment, gender, et cetera, et cetera. But during that time, you've seen one of the most significant gaps in in economic inequality emerge. Um, which is just fascinating contradiction. So, again, to you've got high ideas and high ethics, but how does that link to this reality at play? It's, it's, it's really fascinating. Uh, so there was an interesting article uh, uh, in the Sydney Morning Herald um, by Lionel Laurent and um, – he talks about the fact, or I think it's a he that talks about the fact that what to expect in 2023, it's hard to believe that the post-COVID world at one point was supposed to usher in a new consumer boom worthy of the roaring twenties, mm. consumer-led boom. And so crises have only been piling up from war to inflation, triggering disparate, overlapping shops, shocks. Some are calling the it's the a polycrisis. Now, the term polycrisis, I think, was coined just recently in the Financial Times, wrote a very influential piece. And apparently at the Davos. Um, summit, everyone was using this word. Yeah. And I thought it was just fascinating reflecting on our conversations in this podcast. In many ways, uh, we talked about the networked worlds and how crises uh, fall into each other and yes. exacerbate and how that's creating a gray zone. So it's interesting seeing in the culture that people are now using this term, which I think is another example that there's this mood shift. Yeah. But it's interesting, like what um, Lionel Laurent is suggesting, is that we're now moving into, um, uh, I'll, just, I'll just actually read the from the article here. Societies have shown themselves to be remarkably uh, able to adapt. Inflation is showing signs of easing a relief. But picket asset management strategists still expect global growth to slow to 1.7% in 2023 with stagnation in most developed economies and outwi- outright recession in Europe. The realistic 20s has less of a ring to it, referring to the roaring 20s, yes but that's more likely a view of next year. So it's interesting, the headline is, the Roaring Twenties are over, time to get real. Hmm. And so this is a big theme, this, this return to reality, yes. this, this this resetting of expectations. So that's quite an interesting um, uh, sort of engagement with the issues and sort of in some ways from the sublime to the ridiculous. Um, <laughs> there was an article in uh, the Australian uh, news outlet, news.com.au, uh And uh, the opinion piece by Mary Madigan and the fantastic headline, which is just guaranteed to (laughs) get clicks, got my click, um, was millennials are now behaving like their boomer parents thanks to inflation. Uh, The cost of living crisis isn't just impacting homeowners. Young people are feeling the pinch in a – the word's in there – Shockingly different way. Okay, so I wanna know the shockingly different way. I'm just gonna just read you this because it's just so fantastic. Uh, Inflation is rising, and now I live more like a boomer than a millennial. Yes, living costs have become so bad that my lifestyle is more like a semi-retired mum than a hot young person. Globally, inflation is the highest it's been in 30 years. This means everything is expensive from groceries to petrol to rent. No one comes out scathed when inflation swells. Forget the dream of buying a home being dead. My goal of buying a Gucci belt is in the morgue. Just fantastic. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, just, just. <laughs> I really relate with that one. Yes. Yeah, me too. yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 2023, being a millennial means Ubers, Uber Eats, brunches, dinners, and same day orders from the Iconic, which is a, I don't know if that's everywhere around the world. No, it's just I, like I a, think it's
0: Australian but online. But yeah, it's an thing. online retailer. I don't
1: know. Um, Fashion, basically. Yeah. Uh, My boomer parents have constantly rolled their eyes at these antics and ranted and raved about how they never lived as lavishly as I did. I'd roll my eyes right back and explain that I'm in my Paris Hilton era and must be left alone to make bad choices while I'm young enough that it won't ruin my life. However, inflation is slowly stripping away all the fringe benefits of being a young person. Uh, She goes into a number of uh, discussions around this and they're just these fantastic suggestions like instead of everyone going to the movies in your friendship group, just watch a, a streamable service with some, you know, ice cream ice at home, and, yeah. and she informs us this could be done for twenty dollars, just rather just, than yeah. twenty dollars per person. Yeah, and Which, instead of like having an expensive yeah. brunch, go for a walk in the in the park. Mm. Um, but just the it's fantastic, hard-hitting tips. Um, yeah. I just have to read this. Sorry, it's just no, don't so amazing. apologize. Go on. Suddenly, I've been reduced to making cuts, making life less fun. Yes, I know other people have much bigger eco- problems than they are facing in these uncertain economic times. At least she sort of acknowledges that, yeah, but that doesn't mean I'm not allowed to mourn the loss of the benefits of being footloose and fancy free. I'm young, I should be buying $20 cocktails, getting Ubers home at 2am 2 2 from nightclubs with sticky floors, and ordering Uber Eats the next day to treat my hangover. I shouldn't be telling my friends how enraged I am about the co- rising cost of blueberries, although I'm infuriated. The whole per- point of being young is that the pressures of children and mortgages don't burden you and financial decisions don't ruin- rule your life. However, suddenly I'm at the point where the cost of a night out is becoming so expensive that I have to forego experiences of my youth to keep a roof over my head. And that, that ladies and gentlemen, I added, I added the ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> that is a national shame.
2: Uh-huh.
1: Incredible article and seemingly not that satirical. And um, I'd be interested as well. Like part of my question is, is this just an Australian thing? Because we didn't go through the GFC. Um, I think there's this thing around the world. But it's just this really interesting thing that the writer sees it as a national shame that you can't live in this completely irresponsible way and spend money is, is really, really interesting. Um, I'll just pause for a second just to allow any comments from the millennials in the room. Uh-huh. <clears throat> It seems humorous, but I think there is part of
2: part of it that you're like, if I really like self-diagnose, there's probably
0: There's yeah a
2: truth to it. Yeah. Um, that you just kind of assumed life would turn out a certain way. You'd have certain like the whole entitlement thing. There'd just be yeah. things that you would be provided with and be able to do that. Mm.
0: And I also I mean, I'm I'm not sure if it's worth going on this deep dive yet, but um, mm. Like it it reminds me of that uh, episode we did later in the year last year about civilizational decline mm. and wonder if you know this the millennial generation is just completely unaware of like what the cost, what cost there is in life, mm. you know, because they've mm. never necessarily had to mm. um, bear that cost. Um, whereas the boomer generation has in many mm. ways, um, mm. well, particularly in Australia. Mm.
1: A- another article which caught my attention, which I think a uh, little bit different but I think actually still is in the same mood, is uh, there's an article in Bloomberg um, on technology um, on 8th of January. And basically it was the story around Seattle's school system is mm. actually uh, going to sue big tech over the youth mental health crisis. So I think it's a class action against um, – is that the right word for a class action? I don't know exactly what a class action is. I'll just, I'll just uh, say it. I think it a
0: class action is where multiple people, multiple people get together
1: well, but they're, they're to take action
0: on, on a thing.
1: On yep. their class. Yep. Um, so, so, <laughs> At well, least it's a good pun. It's a good pun, yes, with the school system. Really? So uh, the yeah, Seattle yeah. Schools uh, is putting a case against Meta, which is formerly Facebook, Google, TikTok, Snapchat. Uh, I think it's called just Snap. And basically blaming them uh, for addictions that they're creating mm. and um, that basically what's going on is a national experiment on kids for profit and that they're creating uh, anxiety, depression, other psychological psychological trouble. I thought that was a really interesting thing because what mm-hmm. it is, it's moving from just sort of lamenting this issue to actually now there's a cost for this, that they're seeing the cost of all of these these idealized platforms yeah they're seeing the cost in mental health for young people the effect it's having on their school system and the health and and well-being of the school system and the young people which come to it and then they want cost from the the uh, actual social media platforms so I thought that was just another example of sort of cost uh, and and sort of that idealism colliding yeah um, the last uh, sort of thing I wanted to speak about um, sort of before I wind up this segment of this returning to reality and uh, changing expectations is um, obviously uh, in the last week or so we had the news of the resignation of the New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Mm. Ardern which got very uh, uh, significant uh, international headlines and in many ways the New Zealand Prime Minister, our former New Zealand Prime Minister uh, was in I think sort of Touted globally as the anti-Trump <laughs> in some ways. Yeah. And uh, perhaps, you know, that's also what uh, what people are looking for a sort of good news story in, in or particular sort of media outlets in the midst of the sort of rise of populism across the world and and Arden was sort of boosted and particularly her sort of leading, I think, you know, through the Christchurch massacre uh, yeah. in, in the mosques um, and, uh, you know, gained an international sort of brand um, around her sort of style of politics. Um, she's from the Labor Party of New Zealand. But uh, resigned uh, this week. Um, Some of the things she, uh, you know, talked about was not having stuff left in the tank. For those outside of New Zealand politics, it's something uh, John Key, former New Zealand uh, politician, uh, Prime Minister, said when he resigned. Um, uh, And uh, but interestingly, I think you know, obviously the writing was on the wall that. Uh, that Labor's going to lose the next election. Mm. And, you know, parties have internal polling, which is far better than what you see the polling outside. But I don't so much want to talk about Jacinda Arden. I want to talk about the new incoming Prime Minister, yep. Chris. I think his nickname is Chippy. Chris Chippy. Uh, Hipkins. Um, and just this is really interesting. When you think about the Jacinda Arden uh, era uh, where uh, – You know, it was almost this very high idealism. New Zealand created this wellbeing index. There was this, we're going to take on all these social issues at once. New Zealand's going to keep growing economically. And I'm talking about New Zealand here, but I think this is applicable in many other places. Sure. That you can have high economic growth, high social uh, change, high sort of uh, idealism. And I think Jacinda Ardern, you know, modelled all of that uh, symbolically for people. But it's really interesting the language um, coming through from the new prime minister just any sort of opening remarks. Um, he said that uh, he will refocus the party. I'm reading here from an article in the New Zealand Herald. Uh, Hipkin said he will refocus the party on bread and butter issues. Uh, his intention is to focus mainly on the cost of living and issues affecting New Zealand families. He's going to prune Labor's policy program. Really interesting. He said the world is facing a new challenge. Families are struggling. As a new challenge, a pandemic of inflation. And so his government now would focus on the right now in, in in quotation marks, mm-hmm. and bread and butter issues affecting people. That's fascinating to take apart. Again, reading the media, mm. when you read something like that, a Prime Minister saying in their opening remarks, there have been advisors sitting in a room for some time working this out, like in yeah. the West Wing, um, of what they're actually going to say. So the fact that he's saying right now is this returning to I think that if you look, what's the language behind this? We're moving from the age of these idealistic things. We're going to create this fantastic New Zealand or whatever country it may be in the future. And we now just got, you're hurting in the present. Yes. And bread and butter issues is just a fascinating term they would have thrown around. But really, what that means is we're not going to go for these sort of high progressive utopian things. We're going to bring it back to bread and butter issues affecting people. Mm -hmm. Says this as well. And I think this is really interesting when you link this to that stat of the 1%. Uh, earning two-thirds of the world's wealth. He says, you shouldn't have to be on a six-figure salary to buy a new house. Uh, Hipkin said, my government will bring a strong clarity of sense of purpose to lead New Zealanders through these economic times. Um, And just the final comment I thought was fascinating in this article, I know that some New Zealanders feel we're doing too much too fast and I have heard that message. Mm. That is someone responding to internal polling and and focus groups. So what you're seeing is this, uh, I think, a reality is back, the realistic 20s, a really interesting way. So that's, I think, the first point as we sort of examine this. Reality is back. And what they're doing is the second point. That's resetting expectations. Mm -hmm. And people are doing that uh, very with clarity, like the New Zealand Labor Party here who would have a whole system to work that out, or the writer of the uh, article about how she's no longer ordering Uber Eats um, and you know, realizing that her fancy, free, and footloose life as a young millennial. Uh, that's her self description. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, she has to reset those expectations. Just one more, I add. There was a there was a video that went viral uh, in the last couple of days of uh, a, a young woman who was tic, did a TikTok of herself at the Google headquarters in LA and how yep. wonderful it all was. And there was fuzzy rooms and free food and everything. And and everything's free. And and then you know there's a video that went viral, came out a few days later, I think, which basically she's been sacked with fifteen thousand other people from Google by Alphabet, which is the parent company. So you're seeing this absolute resetting of expectations. Um, but I think that uh, – uh, well, I'll leave the next point. I'll just pause here for any commentary from yeah, okay. my co-pilots.
0: I mean I, I look forward to talking a little bit about that um, that Google uh, sacking incident. Yes. Um, but, yeah, Daniel?
2: Ah, mm, oh, This is all fascinating to just – I suppose, see the thread that's that's through all of these things. Yeah. Mm. Um, yeah. How are you guys seeing this playing out
1: uh, in your everyday?
0: In terms of reality being back? Yes. And resetting of expectations? Mm. I think, yeah, I mean, coming back to that, you know, millennial article and we are, Daniel and I, millennials, um, you know, there there is and in, in the conversations that I'm having with peers and whatnot, there is a, there is a reassessing of, of what, is important and how we deal with our money, and in a, in a way that I haven't experienced before. Mm. Um, so there is there is a big um, shift in that sense.
1: It's mm. interesting personally. that that word reassessing because in COVID there was this big reassessing. Yes, when everyone so sort of stopped. But almost we are hitting a second phase in in reset. Like it was a reassessing, and now there's almost a resetting of expectations. Yes. Well, because
0: now life to a certain extent has returned to normal. Yeah. Um, Whatever that means, but yeah. but now it's like oh well, life hasn't returned to normal. There mm. is a new normal to use a term that we've mm. used before, but then it's also attempting to navigate that wisely with so many unknowns before us. Mm. Because before mm. Mm. you, there was a certain, and we've talked about this. This is like um, a networked world kind of gray zone dynamic mm. that there there was a, an expected course of action. You know, Mm. if you did this, this would happen. Um, and it's going to result in me being able to buy a house, for example, Mm. you know? Mm. Uh, but now it's like, well, I can put all of these things in place that I could before, but I'm not necessarily going to be able to buy the Mm. house or I don't know what the, um, what the housing market is going to do, or I don't know how secure a job is, or mm. whatever. I mean, you can take me out of that. but like this these are the kinds of conversations that I have that are being had. Yeah. Um, and yeah, there, there are so many variables and unknowns that mm. it's, that it's very difficult to know how to best mm. plan and move forward um, in so many areas of life.
1: What's well, interesting if you're not here in the new normal anymore? Like the fact that polycrisis, which means many crises, you know, it's a fancy word for multiple crises. But they're using the word polycrisis, not the new normal, you know. It's interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And even, you know, I feel like in casual conversations over dinner they're you know different people are like oh i did have a a big trip planned this year but i don't know if i'm going to do it because it's like really expensive to go overseas you know and so there's all these expectations that we've Mm. had in the past you know i could just like go overseas for Mm. a couple of weeks and Mm. you know have a great time and then come back and still keep living life relatively Mm. comfortably but it's not necessarily a given or it's definitely not a given anymore Mm. yeah
2: Mm. i think one thing i'm noticing is i think often millennials are marked uh, by a being a little bit like deconstructive and getting cynical at times about different things. Mm. And I always see people in the tension of going, All right, I've kind of grew like experienced my twenties as with the like hope and promise that I'll be, I can just live this life kind of what this article is talking about. However I want, but I know once I get to my thirties, I'll be able to quote unquote settle down and kind of I don't know live a more stable life or whatever. Mm. And kind of having reached that point um, in their 30s and early 40s and like, oh, actually, I don't have that. Mm. And there's almost this like, like internal thing of going, oh, what do I do with that now? And mm. seeing people that are just going just actually really cynical and really mm. kind of just deconstructing different things and mm. kind of pointing fingers at politics, um, mm. industry, whatever it is. Um, but then I think there's a percentage of people that are actually just like burying their head in the sand a little bit mm. and yeah. kind of just, I'm just going to choose to ignore this and mm. hope that it kind of goes away. Mm. Um, which, yeah, pastorally, I'm concerned, mm. <laughs> concerned yeah. for, yeah, because um, I don't think this, and I think what we're talking about is this mm. isn't a going away thing. This isn't just like oh, I'll see this year through and then it'll be all right. Like mm. this is this is something new. Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's
1: were you going to say something? Yeah,
2: said, yeah, I
0: was just just reflecting on that, um, thinking about. You know what are the flow on effects for faith, and I, mm. I guess you know I've had a number of conversations with different people, but for me personally, this is this feels like a challenge and a call to a greater dependence mm. in the bread and butter issues yes, that yes, um, yes. that uh, Chris Hipkins has referred mm. to um, in Chippy. his yeah Chippy, oh, Prime Chippy. Minister Chippy. The, the Prime Minister of New Zealand. But um, but as a person of faith, what does it Actually, look like to bring all of the really mundane things, um, things that perhaps I've felt that I've had some kind of control over before, mm. before God, and mm. and acknowledge that actually I I have complete dependence or need to have complete dependence on Him because I don't mm. know,
2: mm.
0: yeah, mm. and that's an opportunity for like. Greater surrender and greater submission to to mm. God's purposes mm. um, for His people.
2: It was just just a final comment. I was chatting with a pastor friend overseas last week, um, and just catching up, seeing how things are going in in his context. And he just made the comment that, um, and he's big big fan of Rebuilders and and um, his Cultural Moment podcast. And he just talked about he's seeing like the, seeing essentially what you've been talking about for years, evangelistic opportunity because there's so many people in his city now mm. that are just like, oh, that secular myth is, mm. is a myth and it's all yeah. unraveled very quickly before them and are now looking for answers mm. um, and finding that in, mm. in faith. So, it's, yeah, it's just interesting to see that, that starting to unfold, like mm. this kind of prophetic sense you've had for yeah. years is, is happening and before us.
1: Well, see, I mean, I was reading this morning, and I I was interested in sort of like what revivals and renewals look like in different contexts, and I've actually been looking at our own state yes. here in Victoria. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, just really interesting that there was a gold rush at the end of the 19th century, which then was followed where Melbourne just had this huge economic growth yeah. and became one of the richest cities in the world. It was like a Dubai called Marvellous Melbourne uh, in the 19th century and was ahead of many cities in Europe and, and America um, and then went into this big depression mm. uh, and the housing bubble burst. <laughs> it all sounds very familiar. Yes. And, uh, but interesting, this article was saying that's when you had this Revival. The revival began when the certain churches which weren't set up to the new social reality. So, for example, the Anglicans. Um, Struggled a bit in our state because a lot of they were trying to get Anglican vicars to come out and serve here, but a lot wouldn't come. And I I had to sort of smile at this because they said Australians wouldn't respect their sort of social standing, (laughs) (laughs) and uh, it just meant nothing to us. Um, But interestingly, the Methodists, um, which at that time didn't have, also had the problem of of preachers and and recognised vicars or whatever coming Mm. out. the, the Methodists went in a different uh, direction and what they did was just really equipped the lay people. And often the Methodists would plant a church, there wouldn't be like a planter, a vicar, a, a minister going out, mm. just a group of people would start meeting together. But interesting reading this, what they said was that you can often track, uh, and sorry, that was how it set up, but then when the revival happened, it really sort of took off. Um, and Methodism became the biggest sort of like denomination for a period there in, in our state that what happened was you can almost track economic recessions and depressions to revivals. Wow. And so, the, you know, the famous revival which started on Wall Street mm-hmm. um, when uh, various Wall Street traders began to meet and pray because they saw this 19th century um, yes. um, depression happening. So it's interesting the conversations uh, that begin um, during times like this.
0: Yeah, definitely. All right, so we've talked about reality is back there's a resetting of expectations. And then you alluded to this sort of third point that you were going to explore. And this is the notion of the idealist versus the institutionalist in terms of enacting change in a culture or a nation.
1: So there's the mood shift happening in 2023. Yep. which is, yeah, exactly as you said, reality's back, resetting of expectations. But I think what we'll begin to see developing in 2023 mm-hmm. and it and may just be developing under the surface, but I would say it's this tension between the idealist mode and the institutionalist mode. Yes. Okay, so different a- a vehicles for change come mm-hmm. through and this could be at a national level, an international level, in a corporation, it could be in a town, it could be, you in a know, church. In a church even. <laughs> Between um, people have this very idealistic view. They see the preferred future. They're uncompromising on the future they want to have and they realise how far the present is from that future. So they move forward by animating people with a vision which requires rapid change, commitment, moving towards this goal. They want a better day. You know, this the classically you think about the Obama um, sort of campaign. Yes. Uh, hope, that classic hope poster. Um, so that that's one kind of mode. And I would say we've been in a period where that has been dominant. Now, there's yeah. been bad news underneath the service, but almost that sort mm-hmm. of Obama idealistic, um, you know, and you think of all these things in the culture, activism, you know, mm. companies going from just like we're spilling chemicals and making obscene amounts of money and we don't care to like we are now almost like... NGOs of goodness in the world in yeah, corporate yeah, responsibility. Yeah. You've yeah. seen this in, in, in individuals, you know, identity changing from, you know, a sort of very sort of individualistic capitalist sort of sense to almost this sort of virtue signaling of how good we are and we love yep. the earth and we do this and we we diversity tolerance, all this sort of stuff, that, that, that very idealistic sense. And you've seen organizations, you know, work around that. And there's almost been a sort of bureaucratic class one of the great one of the great arguments is, you know, you see in politics is, you know, should the government run everything or should just the free market run everything? Mm. And it's almost a little bit of a mute point because I think uniting the government and the free market now, there's this bureaucratic class of, of managers, HR departments, all these kinds of people who have very much been trying to, in a sense, bring about that idealistic change, mm-hmm. you know, for a better world. That's what university teaches them. You know, this, this is all this stuff. Um, okay. So, There's that dynamic, the idealist. But then there's the institutionalist. The institutionalist Mm -hmm. sets up something which does change, but does it slower. It takes generations. Mm -hmm. It builds something that goes beyond the individual. It wants change, but it realizes that we also have to change first as well. So, you know, you see the health of many, you know, uh, countries is also linked to their institutional health as well. Um, So you've got – but the institutional slow change thing has actually not been called – uh, as much as we rely on them and they're working behind yes. the scenes, yes. it's not been cool because we wanted the faster rate of change. We wanted change to happen very quickly. We wanted the idealistic thing of change. You wanted the Obama hope now versus let's just slowly change things mm-hmm. and, and give your life to an institution and 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 just hope that perhaps your your kids, grandkids will see a better world. So those two things are often as vehicles of change, two modes of change are often in conflict. Yeah. And I think what's happening now is – As there's this resetting of expectations, as there is this uh, return of reality, I think we're seeing the importance of those institutions. Mm -hmm. The fact that you've got people talking about, you know, after January the 6th, the importance of democracy and defending democracy, Ukraine war, the importance of these institutions that are out there, you know, EU or whatever, you know, like defending Ukraine as a liberal democracy, you know, with burgeoning possibly, you know, like becoming like a sort of uh, healthy institutional democracy. Mm. Uh, You you see this across the world. And even, you know, you go back to Chris Hipkins, Chippy uh, uh, in New Zealand, you know, he's saying we're going to do more bread and butter stuff. We're going to talk about the economy. We're going to talk about the cost of living for your families. We're not going to try and go for all these idealistic, you know, big picture stuff. Um, Now that's going to be hard for that management class (laughs) and perhaps even some in the church who all they've known, particularly, again, this is not just an episode about millennials, but particularly that sort of millennial class who've grown up young with idealism who now are in their 30s and 40s and getting those leadership positions, when you've been shaped in a way to be idealistic, but the people you're leading are like, we don't want just more management around idealism, where you need to make stuff work and you need to make bread and butter stuff work. Mm. And making bread and butter stuff to work is actually hard. Why? Okay, I wonder if also what we're seeing in the great resetting of expectations is that a lot of what we thought was idealism was deeply shaped by the age of the image. Yeah, okay. The age of of image of marketing of of public relations where we can in a sense create this wonderful view of a company where you've got the company who is just all about profit and is spilling chemicals in some developing country yet has this fantastic public ad campaign about how wonderful and 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 tolerant and diverse they are. Yes. So we've been in a world which perhaps has Thought of itself as idealistic, and perhaps it says some of those things. Yet a lot of that has been manage image management.
0: Yeah, so it's created a facade. Yes, that doesn't actually reflect what's going on. Yes, in reality.
1: So if you think about, you know, classic, if, if you say to people who who is someone who's an, who symbolised the idealist? you might say a Martin Luther King or you might say a Gandhi. Well, Martin Luther King and Gandhi got shot. Yeah, and died. And I think most idealists in that in that mode throughout history who've, who've almost had that most prophetic edge uh, have realised that it's going to come at great personal cost. They may uh, lose their lives. You know, Martin Luther King's uh, very famous sermon, you know, uh, the night perhaps before he got shot, I can't remember how long it was before, but you know, he was talking like Moses, he may not get to the promised land. Mm. You know, he, he realised that he may have to give his life. Um, and uh, – there's this sense, like I remember seeing um, in New Zealand, in Queenstown, on the beach, there is this uh, Remembrance Day little memorial and it just has the words service over self. Yeah. And so that concept has really shaped most idealists throughout history. But I think because of the age of individualism, the age of the image, people have been tried to be idealistic, but instead of with an ethos of self-sacrifice, yes. we've had an ethos of self-creation. Yeah. That the I, I want to be idealistic, but this is actually feeding who I am. Is that all of it? No. Am I painting with a broad brush stroke? Yes. Am I perhaps, you know, getting some bits wrong? Yes. But I think where we're moving to now is actually the invitation to a kind of change where we need to have both. Yeah. Because uh, you know, bureaucracies and institutions will sometimes forget that institutional prophetic edge, but also that 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 idea. sorry, that idealistic uh, prophetic edge, but also uh, the idealistic needs to be brought into the real world. Yes, <laughs> it it sometimes has to focus, as Chippy reminds us, on the right now yeah. and the bread and butter issues. And I think this is also really important for us as a church. Mm. To you know, how much of us have entered into ministry, particularly the younger uh, cohort, and many of you listen to this with perhaps the idealistic vision. Sure. Yeah. Not realizing that this is actually going to have to cost. And that it's not about self-creation, it's about actually self-sacrifice. And also that will mean sometimes doing the bread and butter stuff, doing the stuff right here, right now, building stuff that will live beyond us. So I think we're moving from a a period of disruption um, because I think what happened with the idealistic thing, it almost morphed into disruption. Mm. Like you look at the political figures who want to tear down. And as you were saying, Daniel, when the idealism is not met, it can turn into deconstruction and, and tearing down and firing at things from a distance and so on. And I think you've seen this politically in the world. Yeah. You know, even the sort of populists are changing. You know, you've, you've sort of got the thing from a Trump as a disruptor to a um um have gone blank Florida, DeSantis, DeSantis um, you know, or even Maloney in Italy. They're sort of trying to be, they're trying to be populist, but they're trying to build something as yes. well. So I think this is the mood we're going into. Um in 2023, you're seeing these shifts um occur. And I think this is a really pivotal year. Uh, in the global mood.
0: Yeah. I think you referred to it as a hinge year.
1: A hinge year.
0: Earlier. Yeah. Well, I mean, man, we started at a restaurant in Denmark and, and ended there. So who knew?
1: We've been everywhere. We've been Denmark. We've been to the Google LA headquarters, New Zealand politics, Wollongong. <laughs> Wollongong, Seattle school system.
0: <laughs> yeah. We've covered a lot of ground, but yeah, I mean, obviously, we're going to dig into um, some of these ideas more across the year and uh, see what's happening across the world and how. Um, yeah, we can continue to explore that. But this is a great place to start. Thank you so much, Mark, for your um, your thoughts and ex- exploration of of what's happening.
1: And can at I just this time? A- end with an encouragement, Please. Because Because um, I think twenty twenty three, you can look at oh my goodness, polycrisis. <laughs> yep. Um, but again to uh, polycrisis precedes poly, poly renewal.
0: renewal. Oh, it's a new new year, new slogan.
1: Love that, yeah. Or an yeah.
0: adapted yeah. slogan. Yeah. Well, let's pray for it. Oh man. Yeah. See you guys next week.